It's your boy Jeff, and if you don't know right now, you're now tuned into the, the hottest podcast in the world. This is Social Conversations. Uh, this is our, uh, season four. This is uh, episode 15, and we have a special guest in the house. But before we get to our special guest, we want to send a special shout out to our sponsors, which is uh, Click A Vodka. Make sure you go support Click A Vodka, the link in the uh, description below. And also, uh, shout out to our other sponsor, which is Holistic Remedies. Uh, they got body, <coughs> body uh, butters, CBD oils, and everything. So make sure you go support um, Holistic Remedies. And also don't forget to use our promo code HR Meat Saucy, and you get 10% off. That's HR Meat Saucy. You get 10% off at checkout. Uh, shout out to my co host going to be today. Shout out to Daddy. Shout out to Mac. Shout out to um, Bernice. Uh, shout out to the whole Saucy uh, Nation family. We appreciate you for joining today if you're watching a live stream uh also we are live on our youtube channel uh switch a uh, twitch channel and on uh social nation tv uh facebook channel okay so uh as you know social nation tv we, we dropping our own 24 7 uh streaming network um anybody who like to be a part of it whether you're a podcaster or you uh you make uh tv shows movies if you're into music like your music video played on our platform uh, just hit me up at SaucyNationTV at gmail.com, and I will see you all the information on the network, okay? Uh, so today's guest, um, th- this man has a, a, a extraordinary uh, resume. Um, he, he's an ex-SWAT um, team negotiator. Uh, he used to play Division One um, basketball. Uh, he's a life coach. And also, he has um, a lot of experience and information that we are looking forward and what we do on the channel. And I would like to welcome you to Social Nation, uh, Terry Tucker. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Thank you, Terry Tucker, for joining the show today. Man, we got a lot to get into, a lot to pack in in this hour. Uh, first of all, how are you doing today? I'm great. How about yourself? I'm doing great. I can't complain. Um, what um, what state do you live in? Colorado. Colorado. Okay, okay. I have a, a couple of friends that's from Colorado. I used to, uh, a couple of coworkers who are from out there, from Denver. Yeah, and they, yeah they, they that's always, where we live. Beautiful always, city. Okay, yeah, they always tell me um all the time, hey, you gotta come visit, you gotta come visit. I'm like, I don't know, I, I gotta, I gotta make it happen to make it out there. You should <laughs> definitely, definitely. Uh, uh, so, so Terry, um, let, let's just start from the beginning. Um, tell us about your humble beginnings. Uh, tell us about uh, where did you grow up? Uh, um, 
you have any siblings? How was growing up in Denver, Colorado? And also, uh, not growing up in Denver, Colorado, but tell us about your upbringing and and the, um, your parents and your, and your household during that time. Sure. So I, I was uh, actually very lucky. I grew up uh, on the south side of Chicago. I am the oldest of three boys. You can't tell this from looking at me, but I'm <laughs> six foot eight inches tall and uh, played college basketball, as you mentioned, uh, at the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina. I've got another brother who's six foot seven, who was a pitcher for the University of Notre Dame's baseball team. Another brother who's six foot six, who was drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers in the National Basketball Association. And then my dad was six five. So I sort of joke that if you sat behind our family in church growing up, there wasn't a prayers chance you were going to see anything that was uh, that was going on at all. And, you know, we had we had great parents. I mean, our parents did what what I call the sort of divide and conquer parenting. You know, it'd be like, okay, Terry's got a game over here. Dad will go to that. You know, Larry's got to practice over here. Mom will go to that. And so we were always running in a million different directions, you know, with, with sports, with, with athletics. Uh, fortunately, I was the first person in my family to actually graduate from college. Um, and then when I did, I moved home to find a job. And, you know, this was, I'm really going to date myself now, but this was long before the internet was available, you know, to help with that. Unfortunately, I did find that first job. I was a, a marketing person in the corporate headquarters of Wendy's International, the hamburger chain. Wow. Unfortunately, I lived with my parents for the next three and a half years as I helped my mom care for my father and my grandmother who were both dying of different forms of cancer. You touched a little bit on my professional career, and I guess I just, just round it out. Um, my wife and I have been married for 28 years. We have one child, a daughter, who's a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy and is an officer in the new branch of the military, the Space Force. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, so um, my next question to you is, um, when, when did you actually fall in love with basketball? You know, I, I got lucky. Um, you know, I, I started playing when I was about nine, and I, I was I just happened to be on the basketball team with the son of the assistant coach of Ohio State uh, at this time. At the time, we were living in Columbus, Ohio, and you know, it's like, well, okay, kids are old enough. Let's start putting him in to organized athletics. And so I got to to be on the same team with the, the assistant coach's son. And I'll, and I'll never forget this. There was a, they were recruiting a player. Uh, the assistant coach was named Bob Burkholder and uh, he was Fred Taylor's assistant. Fred Taylor was the head coach at Ohio state. Right. And, and, and I'm, you know, we're playing this little cracker box gym that doubled at a lunchroom and, you know, an auditorium and all that. I mean, tile floor. I, I mean, it was just, it, it, it was just, it was just a gym, you know, and, I, I ended up walking in behind Mr. Burkholder and the tallest man I had ever seen in my life. It was a guy by the name of Luke Witte, who was seven, I think, two, seven foot two, and he played for Ohio State for four years. This is this is way back in, you know, probably the late 1960s, early 1970s. Right, and that. Right. So, yeah, yeah, so it, it was, you know, I, I mean, I just, I enjoyed it. I was, I was tall, I was skinny. You know, my, my dad was helping me develop my game, but, you know, my brother and I talk all the time. If we knew back then what we know now about training and conditioning and, and you know, making them, you know, all the different things, the different techniques, the different machines that are available, my gosh, I mean, you know, we would have been so much better ball players than, you know, than we were, and, and we were pretty good back then. Right, right. I, I tell my um... – <laughs> My sons all the time. If I would have known what I knew now, I would have been a multi-millionaire. <laughs> right. Oh, uh, uh, my next question to you: uh, Who's your? Who was your favorite basketball player coming up? I, I guess you know. I mean, growing up, I, I was a I was a big New York Knicks fan. I, I mean, I I loved Willis Reed and you know uh, Clyde Frazier and Earl Monroe, David Busher. You know, Bill Bradley, all those guys. I, you know, that was the time when literally you could you could write the organization. You know, you could write the Knicks. Or my brother was a big Boston Celtics fan. 
you know, and you could write and, and you know, they'd send you a, an eight by 10 black and white, you know, photo of your favorite players and stuff like that. And so, so I was a, I was a huge Knicks fan growing up. Um, loved the Celtics as well. And then when we moved to back to Chicago, I think the Bulls kind of were my, were my team, especially I, I was lucky in college. Um, I played against Michael Jordan. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I, I was there. Was, there was a tournament that they had. Um, it was called the North South Doubleheader, and they played it in the Charlotte Coliseum. And they took two teams from North Carolina, which were North Carolina and North Carolina State, and two teams from South Carolina, which were my team, the Citadel and Furman University. And we played around robin, you know, Friday Saturday night. Yeah. So Friday night, I got to play against Jordan and you know Worthy and Perkins and all those guys who that year, this was 1982, won the national championship. It was Jordan's freshman year. And then the next night, got to play against Jim Valvano and his North Carolina State team, who the following year, 1983, they won the national championship. So in the course of one weekend, we got to play against two national championship teams. Well, that's amazing. Uh, Did y'all win that game? Because (laughs) Mike and Jordan. No. No, 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 no. I think you knew the answer to that before you asked it. I just had that. I just had that. <laughs> oh, man. Shout out to Michael Jordan. Yeah. Uh, oh, my next question. Uh, where, where did you go to college, though? So I went to college at the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina. I was uh, – I had three knee surgeries in high school, so I had some, uh, you know, well, some schools kind of backed off. But, um, you know, this was Coach K at Duke, his final year – uh, coaching the team, and I was lucky enough to be recruited by him when he was at West Point, when he was at Army. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, he came to our house and sat on our couch and said, hey, come play at Army. And I just was, you know, with my knee surgeries and that, I'm like, eh, I don't think that was a good fit and that. So I, I ended up saying no. So I'm sure you're probably going to stop the interview right now because I'm a total <laughs> idiot. For, you know, yeah. stuff like but I mean – even back then, you just knew the guy was was a classy guy, you know, and that. And so, I mean, again, this is Chicago. he was from Chicago, so it was, it was great to, you know, watch his career progress. And I, I was just lucky. I mean, you know, you grow up in a big city like Chicago or New York or L.A. or, you know, you're, you're going to play against good competition. I, Isaiah Thomas was in our conference. We used to play, you know, him when I'm in Indiana and – you know, won a national championship onto the Pistons and and won a couple of NBA championships in that. So I, I just got to play against some great competition, and it was just fun to to be part of that. And and it was it's so much different than it is now because our our daughter got my height. Uh, she's six foot two, and wow. actually went to the Air Force Academy on a basketball, you know, to play basketball. She was recruited to do that. So uh, it's just so much different recruiting now than it was you know, 40 years ago when I was being recruited. Wow. That's amazing. <clears throat> um, my next question to you is, uh, where, where did, what did you major in, in college? I was a business administration major. Um, I, I was, I didn't know, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I was, you know, I mean, I was a kid, you know, a 17 year old kid. What, what do you want to, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? I, I, I don't know. I mean, like so many young people, you, you don't know. And so my dad was in business and he was like, well, you know, major in business. Okay. I, I mean, so there were certain majors, you know, playing, even though the Citadel was a small division one school, but playing division one basketball and keeping your grades up. And then the Citadel was also a military school, kind of like, you know, West Point and things like that. So you had that part of it to deal with as well. So you really had to get good at budgeting your time, managing your time. You know, even when my daughter was playing for the Air Force Academy, they would have, when they were on road trips, they would, one, take tutors with them to help the the athletes, you know, stay current in their classes. And two, they would dedicate a couple hours every day that this is study time. You know, we're going to have a place in the hotel where we can go and study. So I was a business administration major just because I didn't really know what else to major in. <laughs> right, like you young, like who knows? You just you just wanted to follow your yeah. dreams, play basketball, and then, you know once that didn't come true for you, then you had to you know go with a, a plan B, and you had to dig right. something quick off uh, the top of the head to to go with. Right. Um, 
my next question to you is how did you end up working um, in a marketing team for a um, corporate marketing team for uh, Wendy's? I just applied. Again, this was 1982. The economy in the United States was not great. Uh, I graduated in May. I didn't get a full-time job until October. And Wendy's, um, uh, our family was was back. I mean, we, we really kind of went back and forth between living in Chicago and living in Columbus, uh, Ohio. And so Wendy's uh, headquarters, corporate headquarters, is located in Dublin, Ohio, just outside of Columbus, and they had an opening for a field marketing trainee. And, you know, I put in a resume for it and, um, you know, went through the interview process and was fortunate enough to get uh, to get hired by them. And it, and it was a great experience because I was there really kind of in the heyday of fast food. We were experimenting with, you know, putting in breakfast, putting in uh, possibly hot dogs in the, in the restaurants, just doing all kinds of a different thing. So it was fun and, and our, our, our commercials were winning awards and things like that. So it was a great time to be there. Okay. Uh, what are, what are some positive things that you uh, took away from working for one days and what is a couple of things that you want to forget about working for one? Yeah. I mean, so I guess I'll kind of go with the other side, you know, my, my passion, my purpose, my why, whatever you want to call it in life, I always felt was to be in law enforcement. My, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, my dad's uh, father was a Chicago police officer from 1924 to 1954. Wow. And he was in Chicago during prohibition when alcohol was outlawed Al in the United States. Yeah, yeah. During, during Al Capone and, and those guys shooting up the town and things like that. And my ex, my grandfather was actually shot in the line of duty with his own gun, taking a murder suspect back to the lockup. Uh, it wasn't a serious injury. He was shot in the ankle. Right. But my dad always remembered the stories my grandmother told of the knock on the door of, you know, Mrs. Tucker, grab your son, come with us. Your husband's been shot. I mean, and let's face it, trauma medicine in 1935 was a whole lot different than trauma medicine is today. Right. So when I expressed an interest in going into law enforcement, my dad was, oh, absolutely not, you know you're going to go to college and you're going to major in business and you're going to get out and get a great job, get married at 2.4. You know, my dad had my whole life planned out, right. but it was the life that my dad yeah, wanted me to live. Not, yeah. Absolutely. Not the one I felt I was supposed to live. And so I had a choice, you know, I, I could say, you know, I, my dad was sick. He was dying of cancer. When I graduated from college, I could say, sorry, dad, you know, I know you're dying, but I'm going to go blaze my own trail or out of love and respect for him. I what I what I did is I went into business. I, I did what he wanted me to do. And I sort of joke that I did what every good son did. I waited till my father passed away and then I followed my dreams. Absolutely. You have to always follow your dreams on that one. Um, my next question to you, um, how did you end up mm -hmm. working for the, the hospital um, at Riverside Methodist? And yeah. Service? Riverside Methodist was a, a huge hospital. It was like 5,000 employees, 1,100 beds. And when I left Wendy's, I was um, a new product marketing supervisor. So I was involved in a lot of the, the, new, the new products and how to take a, a product from the conception, from an idea to putting it into the stores and things like that. And so the hospital developed or uh, had a position open for new program development manager. And so it was, it just, it was the right time. I, I was at Wendy's for about three and a half years and it just was, was the right time. I mean, my grandmother and my father were in and out of Riverside hospital with their cancer battles. And it was just, it was a great place to work with great people. And I, I, I learned, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about medicine, but I learned a lot about just working with different people because as a, program manager, you know, you're like, okay, so you're dealing with pulmonary, you know, respiratory or something like that. I'm like, I don't know anything about this, but so I, you, you really had to learn a lot of different things to be successful at your job. So it, it was a great experience. Wow. wow. So, um, so tell us how did you, um, um, so after your daughter was born, um, you end up moving to Cincinnati. And you, and you yeah. became a police officer in Cincinnati. So you, you wind up ending going to um, law enforcement as well. I did. Actually, that started. So when my wife and I got married, we moved to Santa Barbara, California for her job. 
and that's where our daughter was born. And and, and it's so funny because I saw uh, an advertisement for Santa Barbara City College that came in the in the mail, and I usually threw those out. But for some reason that day, I, I, I was paging through it, and there was a class that if you took the class and successfully completed it, that you could apply to be a reserve police officer with any agency within the state of California. So I, you know, again, my wife had married me when I was a suit and tie, you know, eight to five, Monday through Friday kind of guy. And one night at dinner, it's like, uh, hey, hon, what do you think about this? You know, this entire different lifestyle. And she was very supportive. So I took the class and I was hired by Santa Barbara PD. And so I would work all week at my regular job. And then on Fridays, I would come home put on my uniform, go to roll call and work all night and then come home at seven o'clock in the morning exhausted. Right. But my, my wife said, you used to come up with this big grin on your face. <laughs> so that's how, you know, I got into it. And then when our daughter was born, we're, we're from the Midwest. And so we didn't really have any help out in California. So we moved back to the Midwest to Cincinnati. And that's when I said, you know what, I want to do this full time. And so I went through, through the process, taking the tests, the physical fitness tests, the psychological tests, you know, the interviews and everything like that, and was uh, one of uh, 50 in a class that about 3,500 people took the test initially to get one of those 50 spots. Wow. Oh. That's a lot of people. <laughs> it is. Well, I mean, they rented out the convention center to do it. Oh, I mean, my it was God. Cute. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was like people everywhere. So, so how did you feel when you when you first uh, find out that you got the job? I was excited. I, I mean, I was I was old. I mean, it, I was 37 years old, which, you know, to be a rookie police officer is pretty old. Right. And but I was I, I was excited. I mean, I couldn't wait to, to get up in the morning and go to work and and see how I could make a difference and see how I could help people and things like that. So, you know, from that aspect, it was good. I'll tell you, I took a, a whole lot more Tylenol in the police academy than my younger counterparts did, um, you know, because it, it was just, it was, it was very taxing, but it, it was, it was a great experience. I, I, I loved it. I, I wish I was still doing it, but, you know, life has a way of uh, sometimes throwing you a curve from time to time, but, right, right. you know, met a lot of great people and, and did a lot of fun stuff when I was there. So you was a, a SWAT negotiator. Tell, tell the audience a little bit about that job, man. Uh, what are some skills, skill access that you really had to use of being a negotiator for SWAT? Yeah, so a negotiator, a, a SWAT team is kind of the, you know, when, when you need the sort of big guns, so to speak, you you call in the SWAT team. And the, and the SWAT team is divided up into two groups, a tactical team, which are the men and women with the, the guns and, you know, all the, the different gadgets. And then there's a, a negotiating team that, uh, is trying to talk to the person who may be barricaded or, you know, who may have taken hostages or anything like that. And so that's, that's our job. And we, we train monthly uh, as a group. We work with a psychologist. You know, we, we do all kinds of interesting things. But if you think about what a policeman does or a police officer does, 99% of what we do is face-to-face -face with another human being. So it's whether we're pulling you over to give you a ticket for speeding or, you know, answering a radio run for a fight or a domestic or knocking on your door to tell you to call the hospital because grandma died. I mean, it's always face-to-face. -face. Right. But as negotiators, that wasn't the case. I mean, we were many times, you know, blocks away talking on the phone or, you know, best-case scenario, we're talking – you know, through a locked door or something like that on the other side of the door. So you don't, you don't see what's going on. You can't see, you know, if, if somebody, you know, on the street, you're talking to, you know, they're, they're starting to look around, you know, maybe they're going to run on you, you know, and, or maybe they're balling up their fists and they want to, you know, that might mean they want to fight you. And so you can see that and you can do something about it. But as negotiators, we didn't have that ability. So you had to get good at, figuring out what was going on based on what people were saying, what they weren't saying, and how they were saying it. And a lot of times you had to get good at, you had to be comfortable with silence. So what we would what we would do, I guess the way I describe it is this. So we've all been on a teeter-totter or a seesaw, you know, at the park when we were little kids growing up. Right. And when we started negotiating, the, the persons, you know, who we're negotiating with, their emotional side is way up in the air and their rational side is down on the ground. 
And over time, and all we do is ask them open-ended questions, you know, not yes or no questions, but something that they have to talk about. And we get them to burn off a lot of that emotional energy so that that teeter-totter comes to equilibrium. And then hopefully, as we ask more questions, their rational side ends up being up in the air and their emotional side is down on the ground because we all make better decisions when we use our rational brain as opposed to our emotional brain. And so we would just ask people stuff, you know, and sometimes, you know, you, you talk and then they would stop talking and, and you had to resist. And, and this is hard for human beings in general. You had to resist the, the wanting to fill that dead space, fill that silence. So you would just sit there. And then over time, that person would get uncomfortable and they start talking again. And that's what you were looking to do, burn off a lot of that energy. And I, like I said, I, I, never, I never lost a hostage, but there were several times where I'd say 90% of the time we got the, the person who was either barricaded or taken the hostages out safely. But about 10% of the time, that person decided to take their own life. And while that was certainly tragic, um, I didn't lose any sleep over it. And I hope you don't think I'm callous for that, but I knew I did the best I could to try to get this person out safely, but it was their choice on whether or not that was going to happen. Absolutely. Yeah. It's that choice. You can't really beat yourself up that much. Uh, you, you did it, did it to your, your best, uh, your ability. And sometimes you have good um, endings and sometimes you have bad endings. That's just the story of your life. And kudos to yeah. you. I, I got to drop a, Give you a round of applause for that one. Man. So, so um, just being, just seeing that stuff, actually, people, um, you know, uh, taking their life and everything. Um, uh, further down the line, uh, did you? I know you say you haven't lost sleep over it, but uh, was it something that, uh, like, the images uh, does it play play over and over in your head, and then? Did, does that lead to to your mental health being a little distracted, a little bit? Just think about those things. I mean, you do think about you know there there are always certain people that kind of you know get either under your skin or into your heart you know in some way, and, and you you know you 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 think about them. I, I mean, you know, law enforcement. You you see. I, I mean, not just law enforcement. You know, firefighters, EMS, and, and you know any kind of first responders they see things that the general public doesn't see and, and, and shouldn't see. I, I mean, you, you see a lot of helplessness and hopelessness. And while, you know, you don't get into law enforcement, you don't get into being a first responder for the money, you, you do it because you want to make a difference. You want to help people in your community. And, and so, you know, you see some things that, that certainly stay with you. I, I'll, I'll never forget there was one, it was a Friday night. My partner and I were, were off on Saturday and Sunday, and we had gone to a radio run at this apartment complex with this single mom with, with two small children. And over the weekend, that single mom drowned her two kids in the bathtub. Um, and, you know, that I, I remember think, hearing that, you know, and thinking, oh, my God, you know, 48 hours earlier, I was standing there watching those children run around in that apartment and now they're dead, you know, and they were, and they were killed by their mother, you know, the person who you would think would love them regardless. And she just had some mental issues and broke. And, you know, I, I think about that a lot. I think about the kids that burned in a fire that I had to transport to the morgue uh, in, in the back of, of, of a vehicle and, and that. So, you know, you think about that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it, you're human. You, you know, I mean, we're not, we're not Superman. We, we, but I, you know, so I guess when I, why I say that is because a lot of cops turn to drugs, alcohol, you know, bad behavior because of that. And for me, you know, there was always, hey, you know, shift's over, let's go out for a drink. And I was always like, no, I, you know, I like you guys, but you know what? I want to go home. I, my family was my sanctuary. My family, you know, was something that I, I just wanted to be with that because they kind of grounded me and help me to get through those times that were a little difficult. Right. Did you, did you, um, at any time did you have, had to see a, a therapist? I never did. I mean, we, we had a psychologist that was available to us. I mean, if you, if you shot somebody, you were required to see the psychologist. Um, 
but no, I, I never, I, I never did. I, I mean, my family really grounded me in, in, in keeping my, my sanity and keeping, you know, my mental health in, in a good state. Right. Right. That's good. Um, uh, so you, how many years you was in the force? 10 years, 10 years. And then and you wind up, uh, leaving the force and starting your own, uh, security, uh, consulting business. Uh, tell us about that. How did that come about? Yeah. I, I mean, my wife has always been the primary breadwinner in the family. And so she lost her job in Cincinnati and was not able to find another one. So we ended up, uh, she found one in Houston, Texas. So we moved and, you know, I, I loved what I did as a police officer. I, I felt it was my, my purpose or my passion, but it wasn't, who I was. And, you know, unfortunately I saw not a lot, but enough police officers who, you know, been on the job, I don't know, 30, 35, 40 years and couldn't retire, couldn't let go because their whole identity was tied up in that gun and that badge and the job that they had. And mine wasn't, I, I mean, I knew, you know, I had an undergraduate degree. I had a master's degree. I'd been to law school. And, and so it was like, I can do other things, you know? And so, um, our daughter went to a private school. And so I approached the school and I said, Hey, how about if I do a, a security uh, assessment for you and, you know, tell me what you think I'll do it for free and that. And so they liked it and they told other schools. And so I ended up working with, with schools around the United States to do assessments of their physical campus. You know, how can you be safer? And then also training their staff. And in a lot of cases I wrote their policies and procedures about safety issues and things like that. So, you know, based on my, my background, my education, you know, my SWAT training and things like that, I was able to, to have a pretty fun business that, uh, that I enjoyed. And it was also a time where I was sort of coaching, it wasn't sort of, I was coaching high school basketball. So I could sort of, you know, ramp up the business in the off season and then kind of ramp it back during the season and, and spend more time on the coaching. So it, it worked in a, in a lot of different ways. That's amazing. That's amazing because it's, it's not really easy making a transition like that. But uh, top hat to you. Um, and you wind up going back to your basketball roots, but not playing. You you wind up uh, coaching uh, uh, women's basketball. Tell us about that. Yeah, that was that was hard for me. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, I you know, if you look back on my life, you know, I, I grew up with with two brothers, so I, I don't have any sisters. So you know, and then I went to uh, high school in Chicago and it was all, it was, you know, Catholic high school. So the way Catholic high schools in Chicago are, they're all girls and all boys. And so I was in an all Hey, 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 what's up? Social Nation, it's your boy, Jeff, the owner and host of Social Conversations. And I'm here to tell you about our new sponsor for season three, Holistic Remedy. Holistic Remedies is a black-owned CBD company that creates natural products to make sure you feel good. Their catalog includes 150 milligrams CBD healing balm, 25 milligrams CBD honey and engaged sticks, and hemp seed body butters in six extraordinary scents. Each product is handmade with love to relieve eczema, pain, um, arthritis, lupus, general soreness, and many more. Holistic Remedies is giving everybody in Social Nation 10% off. That's right, 10% off on all their products. All you gotta do is type in the promo code at the checkout, and the promo code is HR Meat Saucy. Again, HR Meat Saucy. Go and support uh, Holistic Remedies, which is a black owned company, and also keep supporting Saucy Conversations. We appreciate all the love and support. Peace and love. all boys Catholic high school. And then when I went to the Citadel, you know, for college, uh, that was at the time, um, an all boys and all male military college. It's now co-ed, but so, you know, I, I had had no interactions with, with women in terms of coaching in that. And I'll give you an example. I, I, you know, so girls, girls play sports, at least from what I've seen, for different reasons than boys do. Now, girls certainly want to win. They want to compete. But it's it's a lot more about the camaraderie, about the relationships that they form with their teammates and things like that. And I, I remember one time we were right in the middle of a game, and I, I turned on the bench, and I pointed to somebody. I said, could, could go in for so-and-so. 
and you know, she nods her head and I turn back and I'm watching the game on the floor and out of the corner of my eye, I see the scores table and there's nobody sitting there waiting to go in. So I turn back around and I point to her and I'm like, you know, go in for so-and-so. And and now she's shaking me off like a big league pitcher, you know, like, you know, I don't like that sign, you know, I'm not doing that. So she's shaking me off and I'm like, what, what do you mean? No, I, I never had anybody, you know, say, no, I don't want to go in the game. And the game was always the culmination of all the hard work and practice. You know, it's like I, as a player, I was disappointed if I didn't get in the game, you know, it's like, what do you mean I'm not playing? So, you know, she, I finally bring her over to me and I'm like, what's the problem? She's like, I don't want to go in the game. I'm like, well, there are no uniform wearers on this team. I mean, you can't just put a uniform on and sit in the bench. You, you have to participate. I said, I understand that. You come to practice every day. You work hard. You make yourself better. You make your teammates better. Why don't you want to play in the game? Because my friends are in the stands, and if I make a mistake, they're going to laugh at me. Like, what? <laughs> I, you know, as, as a coach, I was like, I, I don't understand that. I'm like, what about your teammates? What about the, the, the other girls on the team who are counting on you? I mean, don't you have a responsibility to them as well? And then the tears start, you know, and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm having a counseling session right in the middle of a basketball game. <laughs> you know, <laughs> So it was just, you know, it, it was a different mentality and I had to adapt. You know, I had to realize that I was not coaching guys. I was coaching girls and I had to adapt to, you know, just the way they are. And they're a little bit different than guys. So it, it was a, it was a good experience for me because I, I, I learned probably as much as they did. Right. Uh, did you, did you ever see a league on their own with uh, Tom Hanks? Yes, I did. Yes. So, so, you, so you know what, uh, the, the woman player starts crying and then Tom Hanks like, there's no crying. There's no crying at baseball. There was that moment for you. <laughs> That's a great line. <laughs> oh man. So um <laughs> so um two thousand twelve, uh a, a big challenge uh come in your life. Um cancer. Um uh take us to um the mindset and the emotion of you finding out that you had cancer. Yeah, so I'm a girls' high school basketball coach, and I have a callus break open on the bottom of my foot right below my third toe. And initially, I don't think much of it, but after a couple of weeks of it not healing, I made an appointment to see a podiatrist, a foot doctor friend of mine. And he took an x-ray and he said, Terry, I think you have a little cyst in there, and I can cut it out. And he did, and he showed it to me. It's just a little gelatin sack with some white fat in it, no dark spots, no blood, nothing that gave either one of us concern. But fortunately or unfortunately, he sent it off to pathology, sent it off to have it analyzed. And two weeks later, I received a call from him. And as I mentioned, he was a friend. And the more difficulty he was having explaining what was going on, the more frightened I was becoming. And so finally, he just laid it out for me. He said, Terry, I've been a doctor for 25 years. I have never seen this form of cancer that you have. You have a rare form of melanoma that appears on the bottom of the feet or the palms of the hands. And because your cancer is so incredibly rare, I recommend that you go to the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston and be treated. And I mean, Jeff, I'll be honest with you. I was, I went through all motions that I think a person uh, does, you know, when, when you consider grief, when you, when you lose something, I mean, I was like, first of all, I was in denial. I'm like, well, no, I, I've, I've done everything in my right, uh, in my life. I, I have a physical every year. I eat right. I don't abuse. I, you know, I, w- I went through all that and, you know, then you get mad and then you sort of bargain with God. And then, you know, and then I just got to a point where it was like, this sucks, but I'm going to have to embrace the suck. You know, these are the cards that I've been dealt I'm going to have to play these cards to the best of my ability. And so that, that started down, you know, this odyssey, which has lasted 10 years now. And, you know, they, they certainly didn't give me more than five years when I was initially diagnosed. Wow. So, uh, so, so tell us about the treatment uh, and what you had to endure of dealing with this whole cancer thing. Yeah. So, um, Initially, I had a surgery to remove all the the tumor on the bottom of my foot and all the lymph nodes in my groin. And then I had a skin graft to close the wound on the bottom of my foot where the cancer had been cut out. And when I healed, my oncologist, my doctor, put me on a weekly injection of a drug called interferon 
to help keep the disease from coming back. Interferon for me was just a horrible, nasty, debilitating drug uh, that gave me severe flu-like symptoms for two to three days every week after each injection. And I took those weekly injections for five years. So imagine having the flu every week for five years. Oh. And, and that wasn't a cure. That was just as my oncologist used to say, we're trying to kick the can down the road and buy you more time to have more therapies available for you. 2017, I ended up in the intensive care unit uh, because of the toxicity to the interferon. I ended up in the intensive care unit with a fever of 108 degrees, which usually is not compatible with being alive. I was fortunate that I was at a level one trauma center and an emergency room that was able to stabilize me and, and send me to the ICU. So because of the toxicity, I had to stop the interferon in 2017, and almost immediately, the cancer came back in the exact same spot on my foot where it had presented five years earlier, um, and that necessitated the amputation of my left foot in 2018. Uh, the cancer worked its way up my leg into my shin in 2019, requiring two additional surgeries, and then in 2020, I had an undiagnosed tumor kind of in my ankle area or what was left of my ankle area that grew large enough that it fractured my tibia, my shin bone. And my only recourse right in the middle of the pandemic was to have my left leg amputated above, uh, above the knee. And I also found out I have tumors in my lungs and I'm currently being treated for those now. And, you know, the, because of the COVID situation, I mean, my wife literally dropped me off at the hospital to have my leg amputated. I, could have nobody with me. My surgeon had to get special permission just to do the surgery, and I was the only operation that day. So that's that's kind of where I am now. I go every third week now, and I'm on a clinical trial drug for the tumors in my lungs. They are they are stable, but they're still there, but they haven't gone anywhere else in my body. Right, right. Wow, man. Um, you're staying strong. Uh, you got to be strong. Not just for yourself, but also for your family as well, man. Kudos to you and uh, actually being a, a soldier and actually fighting back this cancer. And uh, I, I just uh, pray to God that um, that this um, you you be able to to beat this cancer and 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 to move forward to you know the next chapter or your uh, chapters of your life coming forward. Thank you. Um. So, so you wind up losing a lot of weight. How, how much pounds did you lose uh, during the whole uh, therapy? I, I lost about 50 pounds. I, I used to say that there was one point where I felt I was so skinny that I could go hang gliding on a Dorito. You know, <laughs> not a great joke, but uh, nonetheless, uh, that's kind of how I felt. Yeah. I, I mean, it was, you know, those, that five years of interferon was just horrible. I mean, you know, I take the the injections on a Saturday night and, you know, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, it was just like having a bad case of the flu. You know, you felt nauseous, you were chilled, you were, had a headache, you know, all, all the, we've all had the flu, but it was just, you knew it was going to be the next week and the next week and the next week. And it, it was, there were days, I'll be honest with you. There were times where I, I was so sick of being sick that I just prayed to die. I was like, just please, you know, just take me out of this. I, I, I am, you know, but, you know, I have a fairly strong faith and, and God didn't. But what I think God did was give me the strength to continue to go on. And, you know, you realize that, you know, you try to win the day, but sometimes winning the day is I, I just got to win this five minutes. You know, I just got to get from the bed to the couch. And that's that was winning the day. And, and I know that sounds real simple, but I mean, for me, that's kind of what it was. Right, right. One day at a time, I want to give you a, a drop of saucy bomb for you. One day at a time. So, um, my next question for you is, um, I want to ask you about your fourth truths to help others uh, lead to their uncommon and a stronger life. Uh, let's just start with the first one. Uh, controlling your mind so it doesn't control you. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I think that's real important. And, and I learned that early. I learned that back when I was in high school and I had those three knee surgeries. And when I went back playing after having those three knee surgeries, 
I remember my brain was putting all kinds of negative thoughts into my mind, you know, things like, hey, you know, you're probably a step slower after these surgeries and college coaches aren't going to be interested in recruiting you. And I remember thinking, well, wait a minute, you know, I'm still playing at an elite level and college coaches are still reaching out about the possibility of playing for their college or the university. So I learned early on that you need you need to change the narrative. You, you need to flip the switch into something more positive. You know, and it, it's estimated that we all have 60 to 70,000 thoughts that pass through our brain every single day. And, you know, many of them we don't even pay attention to. But if your mind can hold one thought at a time, why would you want to make that a negative thought? I remember, uh, you know, I talked earlier about Isaiah Thomas, who, who went to the University of Indiana to play to play college basketball. And I remember he, he used to tell me what I would see him in the summer when he would come home. And, you know, I was like, well, how is it playing for Knight? And he said, Knight's got this great, this great uh, philosophy. This, and he said, and, and this is what he said. He says, mental is to physical as four is to one. And so here's this great coach teaching these premier athletes how to use their bodies to be great basketball players. But what he was really saying is that your mind is four times more important than your physical body is. So right. it, it's really important, I think, for all of us to, to control the thoughts that are in our mind because we all become what we think. Right. Uh, Isaiah Thomas, is. Um, I met him a couple of times. I actually worked for the league. Uh, I, 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 That's I, right. You do. You work for the NBA. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm in security field. Um, um, so I met Isaiah Thomas. Um, actually, my first year I started working for the NBA back in uh, 2015. Um Okay. We, we have like a Christmas party every year. So usually we have like NBA legends come and we usually hold it at um, the convention center, the Javis convention center. Or, and I think mm -hmm. the last time we did before COVID, we had it at, um, at the Manhattan center, right? Right okay. off 34th street, not 34th street, but around that area, uh, Manhattan center. And, um, you know, Isaiah Thomas is very he's very down to earth. He's easy, easy, easy to approach and everything, and he, and he's a a very smart, uh, very very smart guy. Yeah. Uh, just just holding a uh, a conversation with him and just five minutes, I really learned a lot from him. And man, he he's just great. He's just, just a great guy. Yeah. yeah. And he he was in high school, you know, and I I I don't think the apple falls far from the tree, you know, and I mean. <laughs> He learned a ton from Bobby Knight, you know, and I mean, Bobby Knight used to get a, a bad rap about, you know, his temper and stuff like that. But yeah. I, I used to always say that, you know, he cares about his players. Right. And, you know, the the, the Pistons team that Isaiah played for, like the, the bad boys, you know, they, they it was more of a they, they were physical, but it was more of a psychological thing. And yeah. I think I think he got that from uh, Bobby Knight. I think you're right. How Bobby Knight was so tough, you know, yeah, rough, rough, rough around the edges. But you know, you hear a lot of stories about Bobby Knight behind the scenes that he's a very loving and caring guy. Yeah, I mean, Isaiah used to tell us that you know he used to require that they bring a book on their road trips. I mean, not necessarily their course books, you know, their for their school or for their classes, but a book that you would read, like you and I would read for enjoyment. Right. So, you know, he was very big on reading and learning, you know, and just constant learning, you know, getting better, understanding more things, not necessarily about basketball, but just about life in general. Right. Absolutely. Shout out to Isaiah Thomas. Um, your second truth is embracing the pain and difficulty and using it to make you make you a stronger and more determined individual. Yeah, I mean, we're we're all going to experience pain in our lives. And it doesn't have to be, you know, cancer pain or a chronic illness or even any kind of, of a disease whatsoever. I mean, it could be as simple as, you know, you, you break up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, or, you know, uh, you have a fender bender on the way to work, or somebody at your office gets a promotion that you think you deserve. Pain is inevitable in our lives. Suffering, on the other hand, suffering's optional. Suffering's what you do with that pain. Do you take it and use it to make you a stronger and more resilient individual? Or do you wallow in it and feel sorry for yourself and want other people to feel sorry for you? I mean, life is, is a choice. Life is about the choices that we make and life owes us nothing. You know, there's, there's no guarantee for any of us in life. So, you know, I, I, I used to always tell my players that they needed to be comfortable 
with being uncomfortable in life. So, you know, if you've got pain in your life, instead of running from it, you know, instead of understanding that your brain is hardwired to avoid that pain and discomfort and to seek pleasure, instead of, instead of running from pain, do just the opposite. Take that pain, flip it inside you, burn it as fuel, use it as energy to make you a stronger and more resolute individual. And, and I'll give your audience a, a, something I do, I try to do every single day of my life. And that's do one thing that makes you nervous, that makes you uncomfortable, that scares you, that's potentially embarrassing. It doesn't have to be a big thing, something small every day. If you do that every day, when the big things in life hit you and they hit us all, you know, we lose somebody who's close to us, we lose our job, we're living out of a car, whatever it is, we've all heard the stories. If you do those small things every day that make you uncomfortable, when the big things in life hit, you'll be so much more resilient to handle those. Wow, that's very dope. That's very amazing, the way you put that together. Um, My next, uh, your next truth is, Understanding that what you leave behind is what you weave in your hearts and I mean of other people. Yeah, that's that's more of a I guess a legacy truth, for lack of a better word. You know, I think it's important, regardless of where we are in our life, you know, just starting out, middle age, towards the end, I think it's important for all of us to to sort of think about the end game. You know, what do you want people to say about you at your funeral? I mean, what are people going to say about you at your funeral? I mean, I have friends that actually read the obituary page in the newspaper or online every day, one, to keep themselves humble, and two, to remind themselves that someday somebody's gonna be reading their obituary as well. And when I found out that I had, uh, that when I, after I had my leg amputated and I found out I had tumors in my lungs, I went with my wife to the mortuary and to the cemetery and to the church, and I planned my funeral. And because I, when I speak, I, I speak on the topic of, of motivation and the need to keep moving forward in our lives, I actually got some brushback from people uh, for planning my own funeral that, you know, they in, implied in some way that it was defeatist. Wow. And I remember kind of, you know, saying to them, well, last time I checked, we're all going to die. I don't think anybody's working on a cure for life as far as I know, uh, all of us are going to die, but not all of us are really going to live. And I heard a Native American Blackfoot proverb years ago that I love, and it goes like this. When you were born, you cried, and the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a way so that when you die, the world cries, and you rejoice. That's what I want. That's what I'm looking for. Don't get me wrong. I'm not not looking to hasten my demise in any way, shape, or form, but I'm not so upset or scared or nervous about dying because I feel that I found my purpose in life and I live that purpose. So death doesn't really have any kind of a fear or I'm not scared uh, when it comes. I'm not looking for it to happen, but when it comes, it's not going to bother me. Right, right. Absolutely. Uh, I told uh, our friends on the time that, you know, everybody has a purpose in life and it, it's all about you finding what that is and using that to your advantage. Yeah, that's a special gift that uh, God gave you and he gave you that talent for a reason and, and that's to use it. So I, that's why I tell a lot of my friends who are, who be like seeking to find a way through life and I'm like, well, you was put only for a reason. There's a reason why I used the only one to find that egg. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. I mean, and if you think about it, there's so many people in life that kind of live a casual life. Right. And because of that casual living, their their goals, their dreams, their ambitions become a casualty of that unplanned living. And you know, that's that's a shame. And and I, I and I'm gonna make a huge generalization here, but I've I've seen a lot of people die, both you know, in my time in law enforcement and, and certainly my time with cancer. And and the things that I that I think I've come to understand is that people who die, what you and I would probably call peaceful deaths, are people who seem to have found their purpose in life and lived it. Whereas the people who go kicking and screaming, who want another day, who want another year, who want another month, whatever it is, those are the people that never seemed 
to do anything with their life. And, you know, uh, Mark Twain, the, the famous American author and humorist, had a great quote. He said, you know, the two most important days of our lives are the day we're born and the day we figure out why. Wow. Yep, that's absolutely right. <laughs> that's a great way to put it. Um, your last truth is um, remembering that as long as you don't quit, you can never be defeated. Yeah, I think that's, that's pretty self-explanatory, but the way that resonates with me is this. Um, someday my pain is going to end. You know, it may end through surgery. Uh, it may end through some kind of new medication. Quite frankly, it may end when I die. But if, if I quit, if I give up, if I give in to pain, then pain will always be a part of my life. And I, I guess, you know, when you get to that point where, you know, you, you're kind of at the end of your rope, and, and we all get there. Part what uh, uh, some of my official merch we have on Teespring. So if you'd like to get a Source Conversation shirt, hat, hoodie, uh, socks, please uh, go to Teespring and uh, support. And also shout out to our sponsors, Kalikei Vodka, and shout out to Holistic Remedies. Make sure you go support them as well. Shout out to our, my co-host going to be here today. Shout out to Dad, Vanessa, and Mac. A shout out to the whole Saucy family. And we will see you on episode 16. Peace and love. Thank you so much, Terry. God bless you, bro. Thank you.
yesterday's price is not today's price.